Good morning, and welcome to the session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Very pleased to have you with us. My name is Harold Furch Scott Roth. I will be your moderator today. Uh, and joining me are uh, two distinguished speakers to talk about America under network neutrality, under Title II network neutrality. Uh, on my far left is Scott Cleland, head of the Precursor Group. Uh, Scott was a uh, high-ranking government official in various capacities in uh, the first Bush administration uh, and has been uh, an uh, uh, eminent uh, follower of the telecommunications industry and uh, consultant to uh, largest corporations in America. On my immediate left is Rob McDowell former commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission, uh, my colleague here at the Hudson Institute, and uh, now with Wiley Ryan. Um, let me set the stage, and then we'll get, get to our, our panel of experts. Um, on Thursday, the Federal Communications Commission uh, will adopt an order adopting uh, uh, new network neutrality regulations under Title II. It's not, uh, we're not here to discuss whether they will, whether they should. Uh, we're going to assume it's going to happen. Uh, and America, for the next couple of years at least, is going to have regulations uh, on network neutrality based on Title II. Um, and so the the questions that I'd like to, to pose to our experts is what, uh, what will America look like under Title II, and particularly various segments of, uh, of the American economy. I'd like to take separate looks at what uh, the Internet network and ISP community will look like, uh, what the online content companies will look like, consumers, investors and lenders, uh, and then uh, if we have time, the FCC and the courts. Um, the Internet is not going to disappear on Friday. Uh, Americans will still be using the Internet. Uh, businesses will still be using the Internet. Um, but the Internet is going to be different, different than it wa would have been without these rules. And to help us understand it, uh, let me turn first to Scott and uh, ask you about changes in, in behavior of uh, both large and small ISPs. What will they do with the network neutrality rules? Well, first of all, they're going to sue. Um, I, I'll be surprised if people, if there's anybody that doesn't join in and sue. Um, and we're going to have litigation uncertainty over us for a good uh, um, probably 30 to uh, 48 months at least. And so um, it, what, what they're, this is the biggest change in modern FCC history. The base, we have to put this in perspective. We had consistent uh, eight major precedents since 1970. So 44 years of going in the same direction. And what the FCC is saying, oops, now we've changed our mind. We want to go back. Uh, um, decades um, to where we want to regulate this or have the regulatory authority of a Title II monopoly regulation regime from 1934. They're even um, ignoring what uh, Congress updated in 1996 in promoting competition. So you have to understand that the entire foundation 
of everything that the Internet has been built on in the United States is now an open question. So everything that's been built on it, and you will see over time a cascade of decisions when people go, oh, what does this mean for this, for universal service? What does this mean for privacy? What does this mean for international interconnection? What does this mean? We go on and on and on. You can't change, literally pull the rug out or remove the foundation without having an effect on every one of the layers or the floors above. So what does this mean for an, an ISP? An ISP now realizes it, is, it would be under mother may I regulation. So rather than just going ahead and doing what it's done for the last decade, it has to think and say, wait a minute, is the FCC going to say this is just or reasonable? And by the way, they've signaled to us that commercially reasonable won't be commercially reasonable anymore because that's a bias because it's a bias towards business and economics. We need to move towards what's reasonable in a consumer's eyes. Sounds like that might be free. So this is a dramatic, big change. And what I think, you know, on, for innovation, one of the beautiful things about the, uh, the Internet is, is it's a, um, it has innovation without permission from the government. Well, um, Title II is, mother may I have permission to do just about everything. And I'll ra wrap up on, the, on this intro, is, is that what they're going to do is a case-by-case case where if anybody complains, they're going to decide if that particular innovation or that action is just or reasonable. Think of innovation uh, permission review panels. That's what this will be. Is anytime anybody does anything creative in the ISP area that's an innovative in engineering or an innovation in, uh, um, in marketing, a new price offering, they're going to have to um, second guess and think, hey, is the government going to second guess us and change the mind after we've invested all this money and we have talked to people about it and they're going to say no because they have an incentive to say no in order to uh, justify their existence. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having us. And uh, uh, this is very important. Um, and as Scott pointed out, we will have years of uncertainty um, and a lot of questions. So what happens on Thursday answers a couple of questions, but spawns uh, dozens or scores or maybe even hundreds more uh, for years to come. And I think when you drew out that timeline for appeals, you were probably counting on a Supreme Court appeal ultimately. Um, and there will be a variety of groups and interests that I think appeal this. So the, the uh, more purists on the net neutrality side may appeal. Um, as uh, we were talking about in the green room, you, you raised in the green room beforehand, um, on the forbearance aspect of this. So forbearing or refraining from implementing a large part of uh, Title II um, that's diametrically opposed and, and uh, undercuts the logic for classifying uh, Internet networks um, uh, as telecom services to begin with. So how is an appellate court going to handle that inconsistency? How is the FCC going to write around uh, so-called edge providers? What is an edge provider? Um, if you look at a content delivery company uh, or application company, they will have thousands of miles of fiber connecting servers and routers all over the country, all over the world. Uh, delivering ones and zeros. Um, so if you want to download a movie from Netflix, uh, Netflix um, uh, movies are cached here locally nearby, so uh, you get it more quickly. 
uh, and uh, they have telecom networks. Um, is it the differentiation going to be last mile connectivity? Well, Google Fiber has last mile connectivity. Um, some services that sell content through resold wireless services to e-readers, um, they have last mile connectivity. Um, so how is the commission going to write around and make these distinctions? Is it ultimately going to be the politically favored versus the disfavored? Um, and uh, I'm also hearing that the commission will be actually coming up with an ombudsman and literally a mother may I panel for industry to file in advance their business plans uh, before they innovate. Um, and this is, you know, just think of how far we've come in the worst way um, during the course of this debate over the past few years. When this was in 2010 considered something that could never happen, and even a year ago in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Verizon case, uh, something that would never happen. Um, so uh, the commission will come out with the order. They'll vote on it Thursday. I think it might take a few days uh, for them to uh, write around the dissents of Commissioners Pye and O'Reilly, uh, so it might not come out for a little while longer. Uh, but then we'll see very aggressive enforcement by the commission to continue to expand its jurisdiction uh, and to have the government ultimately become the gatekeeper for Internet innovation. Let's, let's drill down a little bit on what the ISPs will actually do, how their behavior will change. And I'd particularly like to focus on two issues. Um, one is investment in plants and equipment, uh, whether that's on the wireline or the wireless side. And um, the other is uh, pricing. Uh, what will they do if, uh, you know, hypothetically, investment schedule slips uh, and uh, capacity continues to grow, what what will that lead to? I assume that leads to higher prices. Well, let me let me ask the two of you. Scott, what how do you if you're sitting on the boardroom of a uh, major communications company, uh, how does Title II affect decisions that your board is going to well, and also let me um, say that I'm also chairman of Net Competition, and that's an e-forum that's supported by broadband interests. So I have a very good sense of what this means uh, from an investment standpoint. And basically, it puts um, most all non-operational, non-essential investments into a new category. Because um, what, in the simplest terms, it takes reliable investments and puts them in a speculative um, category. Uh, and why do I say that? It's saying there's so many uncertainties. Do we know if what foundational regime is this going to operate under? What is the um, the way it will be judged? Well, is it commercially reasonable from a commercial standpoint? I mean, we they won't know. The longer out and the bigger the investment there is, the more uh, reluctance there will to be to go forward with it. Uh, um, this is just simple economics. When you create uncertainty, when you um, create risk on the, over the long term of a company being able to reliably earn a rate of return that is acceptable for the capital that was put in, and this is pretty risk-averse capital that, they're gonna be, that they originally have been putting in. I mean, the reason why we have 60 to $70 billion that have been spent to continue to upgrade the investment community is no one in this industry ever fathomed that the FCC could be this stupid this political, this disruptive, that they would endanger 
the investments that are needed in order to keep up with the massive exponential increases in broadband demand. So um, you have to also realize every large ISP and even the little ISPs, it isn't just one investment budget. It is a capital budget with large ones that might involve a thousand or two thousand lines on a spreadsheet. And they're going to have to recategorize these things. I mean, the complexity that's being put on here, at a minimum, it will slow down investment decisions because you will have to process through all these new factors. But overall, I mean, it's, it's just economics 101 that there will be less investment because there will be less certainty that they will be able to earn the expected profit. And then uh, what does it mean for investors that aren't, uh, you know, that, that aren't companies? They're going to look at this and go, you know, relatively, I can invest. Capital goes where it's, where it's wanted. I think I will go towards industries that don't have an unquantifiable, unknown risk that came dropped out of the sky and an FCC who's, um, who's intent on really maximally enforcing it. So um, I think you will see over time rational investors slowly um, rotating their portfolios away from unquantifiable risk towards more reliable investments. Scott, if you could just elaborate a little bit on the, the following thing, which I've been looking at and puzzling over. Um, have we seen that shift in the past year, or are we going to be seeing more of it uh, over time as, as investors begin to understand exactly what network neutrality is? We have – I've been in the investment uh, – you know, we're watching the investment world for over a couple of decades. That's why I and, asked you and, the question. And, and um, the market of today is very different than it was before. It's very indexed. About 30 percent of money is just dumb money. It chases um, – you know, it just invests in the S&P 500. It doesn't matter if – uh, half of the S&P was wiped out the day before, it invests in them. So um, uh, the, the, the market is much less efficient in adapting to forward-looking changes. And so I, I view when people will try and say the next day, they'll go, oh, uh, the stocks did this. And they will try and encapsulate the market wisdom of whether this was good or bad in that instantaneous snapshot is just ludicrous for anybody who understands investing and, and how the world works. Because, uh, you know, uh, if on that day something happens with interest rates or something with the market and everybody goes up because the, the, um, the tide rises and everybody rises, that will overwhelm or change every little sector wide. So what people are going to have to realize is that on the margin, over time, as investors comprehend the complexity, the uncertainty, and the negativity of this decision, you will see a migration over time away from riskier bets to, um, uh, um, uh, to uh, you know, less risky votes. And what they're going to find out over time is that this risk is going to bleed into the tech sector. Cloud computing, very, very similar to what an ISP is. Take a cloud computing platform, all the big ones you know in the tech sector. If you take a mirror image, they do functionally very similar to what an ISP does. Then you look at the whole internet advertising industry. They have no clue of what, um, of what uh, privacy regulation is for them because the FCC simply is asserting jurisdiction over end-to-end -end 
meaning out to the edge, that goes all the way into the, um, to the internet ecosystem, all the way into cloud computing. They're going to say, oh, we don't want to um, hurt our friends. This is only the bad guys we're going after here. So to pick up on Rob's. So there, there is going to be risk to anybody that makes money on internet advertising because Section 222, which is the privacy, the identifiers of network information, you can call them cookies, that's illegal under, um, under Title II, roughly illegal. And the courts are going to have to sort that out, and that'll take 30 to 48 months. Rob, uh, Scott paints a pretty dim view of what's going to happen in the communications sector, uh, uh, and particularly some of these boundary issues about where the commission is going to say you're, you're under Title II or no, you're, you're over. How do you see that playing out? How, how do you see uh, uh, decisions being made about uh, which services are going to be labeled telecom and thus subject to Title II. And Scott is giving a dim view, and I, I can't really bring up the volume of uh, lumens uh, to brighten the day, I'm afraid. Um, so and that is an excellent question. That is what uh, we don't know, and that will that that is the root question that will spawn scores more uh, over the coming years. Um, when the, the chairman, uh, was it three weeks ago, came out with his sort of memo uh, outlining uh, what uh, he was going to put in the order, um, I, I think that's noteworthy to help try to address this uh, question because it can't be answered. Um, I, I was at the Consumer Electronics Show just last month, which seems like a year ago at this point, um, where the chairman uh, said there were going to be three sections of uh, Title II included in the order, sections 201, 202, and 208. Um, and now, with this memo, just a month later, uh, he's added uh, 12 more, uh, and implicitly added a, a 13th, ironically, Section 251, by talking about interconnection, but probably didn't want to actually write Section 251 in the memo because it includes interconnection and unbundling and probably thought that would royal markets further. But the uh, fraternal twin of interconnection is unbundling. So just in a month, it grew from three sections to, let's say, 13 sections. Um, and since... It was circulated to uh, commissioners 20 days ago, 19 days ago. Um, I'm sure there's more language being written, not deregulatory, not going in that direction, but going in the more uh, regulatory uh, direction. Then, on top of all that, let's forget all the lawyerly, which sections are actually going to be cited. kind of doesn't matter, really, uh, what, what laws they, they cite, because there's going to be this general catch-all provision of, please file a complaint with us because we have authority to regulate the general conduct in the internet ecosphere. And if you look at um, just the paragraph they used to describe it, actually it's a sentence, sentence long paragraph, uh, this would, quote, uh, allow the commission to address issues that may arise in the exchange of traffic between mass market broadband providers and edge providers, end quote. Well, what the heck does that mean? So. What is an edge provider? Again, we, you know, we talked about how they all have thousands of miles of fiber connecting servers and routers. Many have last mile connectivity, but it doesn't matter. If, if, if they're trying to draw the line at last mile connectivity, they are, for the first time ever, penetrating into the backbone for just general internet regulation. And in that, these networks are not dumb pipes, but have are loaded with intelligence and content. Um, and it's impossible from really an engineering perspective to draw a distinction between the 
delivery and the information services, the telecom services and the information services. As Scott has pointed out several times, the Supreme Court in 2005 said explicitly, uh, which I've quoted and you've quoted, um, that if you, because they're intertwined, information services and telecom services. So think of you're a pizza parlor, you make pizza, but someone calls and asks you to deliver the pizza. Are you now in the pizza business or the delivery business? And the answer, according to the Supreme Court, is yes. You're in both. Okay. So if you think you're in the content business, but you have a network and you have that uh, movie cached locally for speedy access, according to the Supreme Court, after a Title II classification, you're going to be a telecom service provider. All right. Doesn't matter if there's last mile connectivity or not, according to the United States Supreme Court in 2005 under Brand X. So this is going to cause so the, some of the companies advocating for this are, are going to be sorry for what they wished uh, because they're going to find themselves in, in traps in this Title II jungle. You mean a, a Netflix or an Amazon will now become a telecom? I, that, I don't know how the commission writes around that to make those distinctions. So uh, if the commission writes around it uh, on Thursday, um, I imagine there will be people coming uh, back into the commission for clarification of that or uh, in the courts to say, if we have to live under this regime, so do they. Let me ask a, a kind of a technical lawyerly question of both of you, but I'll start with you, Rob. Um, the commission has been talking about uh, in forbearing and including just some sections of the act. Enforcement is usually done under rules and rules are promulgated under orders, and they're promulgated under orders that refer to multiple sections of the act, not one. There isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence. I can't think of a single instance. A one-to-one -one correspondence where there's a rule, and it was adopted pursuant to one and only one section of the act. It's usually adopted pursuant to a dozen different sections of the act. What is it, and in when the commission has done forbearance in the past, it's always been forbearance of rules, not of sections. So what does it mean to forbear from sections in terms of specific rules? If, if the rule was promulgated under a dozen sections and the commission now says, well, three of those sections don't apply, but the other nine do, does the rule exist? Excellent question, and uh, for those playing at home who have no idea what was just asked, I'll try to help uh, because it's, it's very technical. No, it's an excellent question, but it does acquire a base of knowledge. So this idea of forbearance uh, and how the commission is going to handle it is really central to whether or not its order will survive on appeal. So, uh, again, it's going to say, have to say, as, as Scott pointed out, a radical departure from the beginning of the treatment of computer-to-computer -computer communications, which we called information services, way back in the day called enhanced services, too. Um, and the, uh, so those were always classified as information services, not under Title II. Uh, Title II was for the phone company, for phone, basically voice, analog, circuit-switched communications. Um, so in 1996, uh, many thanks to... Uh, Dr. Furchgott Roth at the time, uh, who was a staffer to the House Energy and Commerce Committee, um, uh, wrote Section 10 uh, of the 96 Act, which allowed the commission to forbear from or refrain from 
um, certain rules uh, under Title II. Traditionally, and I worked on several of these, both uh, in the private sector before I got to the FCC and during my seven years at the Commission. In order to forbear, what traditionally has happened is someone files a petition saying there's a specific rule, and the Commission has 12 months, ends up always being 15 months, uh, to conduct a very evidence-intensive, fact-intensive proceeding, sort of a, a trial, but on paper, uh, to look at all the facts and determine whether or not it's in the public interest to refrain from enforcing this rule or just wipe it off the books altogether. Um, it hasn't been to wholesale um, get rid of requirements with a breezy wave of the hand in sort of a rulemaking fashion. It's never been done that way. No. Uh, and it's always been very fact-based and very adjudicatory in nature. Uh, adjudicatory-like, although the D.C. Circuit recently said they were rulemakings, technically, the way it's actually been conducted is more like an adjudicatory proceeding. This is important. I know this sounds like lawyer uh, uh, gobbledygook, uh, and it is in part, but it's important gobbledygook. Um, so uh, the commission is not going to be able, I don't think, on the one hand to say market conditions have changed, so we're now we're treating information services as telecom services. And so whatever their rational basis is for saying that uh, is going to be undercut by them with a wave of the hand in a breezy fashion saying, oh, but the vast majority of Title II won't be applied. Because why? Because market conditions don't warrant it? Because there's sufficient competition to say that it's not in the public interest to apply most of it? That undercuts the reason for classification to begin with. So I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the, the commission to defend. Um, in court. There are a number of situations uh, how this could play out, um, one of which is all of it gets blown up by the courts or by the Supreme Court ultimately. Um, but another situation which keeps me up at night is um, the classification uh, action stands. I'm not saying this will happen, but it's one possible scenario. But the forbearance aspect of it fails. So then you'll have the full weight of Title II on the entire Internet end-to-end as the chairman has pointed out, he wants full jurisdiction over. Um, so uh, that, we talk about roiling markets and talk about the, we can talk about the international signals as well so that that sends internationally, um, uh, could be devastating. As you pointed out, internet service providers, some of these internet service providers, the larger ones, aren't going to go out of business on, uh, on Friday, but it will become a very uncertain um, atmosphere where there's far less capital expenditures, far less innovation, um, and also uh, content and application providers who have networks of their own uh, are going to be at risk of being captured by this. Scott, how do the boardrooms of corporations look at forbearance? Do, do they understand it? Do, do they have a sense of what is going to go on, or uh, do they think the commission is just going to have a, a light touch regulation that's going to stand up in court. Uh, thanks for asking that question, and I'm going to um, answer it by um, piggy piggybacking what you said. Uh, and first of all, to give, pay you a compliment is you've written the best forbearance analysis of anybody out there. So I, I read and uh, appreciated and learned from uh, Harold's uh, forbearance piece on this. And uh, just so you understand, forbearance just it's can the FCC undo something in law and. Um, uh, um, it, 
The reason um, why the forbearance process is a problem for boardrooms or for anybody that wants to invest is they have uh, 18 years of experience with forbearance. And they've learned, remember the old peanut skit of Lucy and the football? They know the forbearance thing is the SEC says, oh, come here, use our process, and we'll um, consider the facts and, and, and we'll, uh, we'll potentially forbear. And they almost always have pulled the football away. So we're talking about dozens and dozens of attempts where they have had to come in because they want to um, they, they want to hope that the football won't be pulled away. But the FCC, um, in almost every major case, has uh, not forbeared or taken years and years and years. Just like taking away some of the most ludicrous bookkeeping things. It took them years and years to do. So um, uh, forbearance is um, a practical joke that has been put on the, uh, the industry. And um, what's important to understand under this is we now know what the incentive of the FCC is. And the incentive is if there is power to be grabbed, it grabs it and it keeps it. So why did the number of sections increase? Well, and what he didn't say is they're saying, oh, we're going to forbear from some of this for some people and all this so they're trying to take this forbearance process, which was supposed to be pretty clean cut, and they're mixing it and slicing it and molding it into mush. So the for, forbearance process overall has not been a very legitimate one, uh, and uh, they have only made it uh, more difficult. I want to piggyback one other thing. When he talked about this future conduct, this new chapter, give you an insight. If you want to know what really goes on with Title II, there are a thousand regulations, but 80% of the power, 80% of the power of somebody that you know really understands Title II resides in one section, Section 201, which is the omnibus right to have price regulation um, on just and reasonable terms for prices, terms, and conditions. And if anybody hasn't read 201, and I'll bet you everybody in this room has not read Section 201 lately, Go to the last sentence. And the last sentence for any person that's a free market-minded will make your knees shake. I'll paraphrase it. It basically says, and the commission has uh, the, um, the, the ability to write rules and regulations on whatever it deems the public interest requires. It is as wide open a sentence, and it's in 201, which is the mother load of all authority. And that, I believe, is where they're going to rest that future conduct on. So um, uh, it is sweeping authority. And basically, it takes a 1934 monopoly situation where we were only talking about copper wire. And we really didn't have any innovations in telecommunications for 50 years. The phone didn't change for 50 years because, you know, even, you know, they, um, they, they no kept second. wireless away for 35 so that 201, when we talk about um, uh, sections, about forbearing and all this, if they forbeared from 201 and that last sentence, then I would believe they were serious about forbearance. Because if you um, um, just have um, 201 and you have that last sentence, you can recreate most everything else in the title through regulation. That's what scares me. One aspect of what the 
ISPs would do that I'd like to get your proposing your comments on it, and that's the question of uh, pricing. Um, network neutrality has been uh, marketed to the American public as being good for And one of them, people have told me, oh, it's going to lead to lower prices. And from an economic perspective, regulation doesn't make higher prices. How do you see this playing out? Is, is there a scenario where uh, an ISP, large or small, as a result of Title II, is going to say, oh, wow, gee, I guess I'm going to lower prices? Is that a plausible scenario? So I, I gave a, a speech on this in 2012 in, in Rome, uh, and it was great having summer law clerks to help me do some research on a theory that I had, which was let's look at the regulation of railroads from the 1887 Interstate Commerce Act, um, common carriage regulation uh, that became the template for the 1934 Communications Act. Um, when they faced competition in the 1920s, starting in the 1920s, uh, from trucking, they didn't um, do the right thing and say, oh, we've got a competitor, please deregulate us. They said, please regulate our rival the way we're regulated. In a way, they'd become sort of comfortable with the rate of return regulation um, and didn't have the imagination to think that actually they'd be better off and their share value would go up in a competitive environment. Uh, so trucking then became regulated as a common carrier. Then along came airplanes uh, that also carried people and goods, just like trucks and plane, uh, trains. And so trucking and railroads didn't say, oh, please uh, deregulate us. Now there's a third competitor here. They said, please regulate airlines just the way we're regulated. And that went on for 50, almost 50 years, until actually the Carter administration, uh, essentially, making a long story short, oversimplifying things, um, and they started to deregulate these industries. The pro-regulation proponents, just like the net neutrality regulation uh, proponents of today, said this is going to be terrible for consumers, prices are going to go up, investment in the infrastructure will go down, uh, customer service will deteriorate, transit times, how long it takes to get people and goods from point A to point B, will take longer. This will be a disaster. You cannot do this. It was done anyway. And the exact opposite of all the chicken littles, what they said, happened. So investment went up, prices went down to consumers, and transit time became quicker, and quality went up, in other words. And innovation went up, and that, that continues today. So for those of us old enough to remember uh, what it was like of the, to have the Ma Bell phone monopoly, uh, my... Uh, I, Two grandmothers, obviously. One lived in Texas, the other lived in Oklahoma, and I lived here. So on their birthdays, we'd call them, and it was a very quick phone call. We'd pass it around to the family. We came from very frugal Scottish stock. So my father didn't believe in spending too much money. So why did we pass the phone around so quickly to wish uh, Grandma a happy birthday? That's because that phone call was really expensive. Why was that phone call really expensive on our black rotary dial phone, which was the state of the art, as Scott pointed out, for 50 years? It was really expensive because of the nature of the regulation, the distortion caused by the regulation. There were implicit subsidies. There were other regulatory incentives to keep those rates artificially high. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but regulation, that's a historic example. Um, it's been written about many, in many different ways. 
uh, by many different people, but regulation actually keeps prices high, investment low, and innovation low, and consumers suffer as a result. So when you think about this whole debate, I know we're not supposed to talk about whether it should happen or not, but I can't help myself, which is you know, from the very premise, nothing is broken here that needs fixing. If something were broken, there are ample laws on the books to address every one of the parade of horribles. And then where I think this is ultimately going is price regulation. Uh, the chairman maintains that that's not going to be the case. But as Scott pointed out, 201 alone, just in reasonable rates, terms, and conditions, at some point a content delivery network is going to come to the commission here in the final two years of the Obama administration to say, well, this ISP slash backbone provider is ostensibly giving us access to their networks to deliver our movies, but at a price that we think is too high. FCC, do something about it. And the FCC is going to say, well, we said we weren't going to regulate rates, but you're right. That rate's too high. We're not going to say what the rate is, but that rate is too high. And that becomes de facto rate regulation or uh, price cap rate regulation. Um, and that's going to happen, mark my words. It'll be expanded upon through enforcement, as we're seeing across the Obama administration at all agencies, uh, rulemakings through adjudication, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, and rate regulation will be part of that. Yeah. No, Rob, I, uh, well said. I don't have a, a lot to add. And Rob has been a great voice inside the FCC for many years and uh, um, worked with him there and then outside of being one of the few people that has you know clarity of thought and articulate uh, um, uh, views about how this in the real world works, both in, inside and outside. Um, on prices, Harold, uh, um, what we have to realize is, is that uh, um, you know, competition does drive prices, but the main thing is Moore's law. Uh, when you're in digital world, has been driving every 18 months. There, you know, the, uh, the amount of processing that could be done for one ship, go, um, you know, doubles basically. And so what it does is it it you know drives down the cost of uh, computing, of communications, and of storage. And so what I worry about is you know, oh, first of all, you have to realize over the last uh, since uh, the, t- the Telecom Act. Speeds have increased like 200 times, and the, the, the price per megabit has just plummeted. And that is going because of the, the inputs have been getting cheaper and cheaper. So what I worry about the FCC is, is they're, they're going to basically say, look, Moore's Law did this efficiency, prices should do this. And they're going to start regulating prices on what they think they should be and say, hey, because this cost of input goes down, I want the prices to go down. Markets need to figure that out because there's this something called investment and facility replacement. What a concept. The Europeans haven't figured it out yet. What they've done is they basically don't have a long-term capital. They're way behind on LTE and they're way behind on, on, uh, on fiber. Why are they way behind? Because they don't have a long-term capital budget because they constantly rate it to feed this year's budget. And so... When, um, you know, that's some of the just messed up economics you're going to see. And so there will be needs at times in certain years where there will be a higher capital cost and a higher investment, and prices aren't going to come down across the industry like they have before. And then in a future year, they'll come down more than somebody might expect. That's how competition and markets work. They respond to economic signals, not a regulator saying, this is what I think, this is what three people think, and they don't have a clue of how economics and markets work. Let's, let's change the subject ever so slightly and talk about what uh, 
online content companies are going to do. A lot of the marketing of network neutrality is focused on uh, how online content companies are going to be able to innovate and do all sorts of new things. Um, what, what does Title II do for, uh, uh, whether you want to call it an online company, a content company, an edge provider, what will they be able to do under Title II that they cannot do today? Uh, will this Title II change their behavior in any way, other than marching to the FCC with enforcement? <laughs> so this is bad for America, but good, very good for lawyers such as myself, uh, which is not good for America. But anyway, um, so uh, first of all, let, you know, let's keep in mind uh, that the internet is open and freedom enhancing and has been uh, due to the Clinton-Gore administration's uh, policy of having a, a hands-off approach to the net. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, there are thousands of so-called edge providers, app providers, whatever, content providers uh, that spring up every year in our country and we lead the world in this beautiful explosion of entrepreneurial brilliance. And they rise or fall based on their own merits. Uh, and the barriers to entry are quite low. So it's a phenomenal, almost utopia of, uh, of entrepreneurialism. Um, and actually, Title II starts to foreclose that for them. So many of them have bought into Title II thinking it's going to help them. But I cut my teeth in the Title II world almost 25 years ago, uh, hard to believe, uh, as a young associate. Uh, my, very, my very first day as an attorney was October the 1st, 1990 the first Monday in October, actually. And my first assignment was a tariff dispute. I had no idea what a tariff was. I thought that's what we fought the Revolutionary War over, was the king's tariffs. But <laughs> a tariff is a schedule of rates, terms, and conditions that has the force and effect of law. Now, the commission has said they're not going to have tariffing of, uh, of broadband services or, or like services. But the point being, uh, this goes way back. So under the 81 years of Title II court precedent, um, and commission precedent, um, you can have discrimination in traffic. You can, if someone is uh, uh, producing a lot of traffic on your network, you can provide them a volume discount. Uh, but it's cost plus a reasonable profit, essentially, is how you determine what the right rate is. Uh, so that this is the, the view of the future here. Uh, so the entrepreneur who says, oh, well, I don't want to have to pay, you know, pay prioritization is a bad idea, which basically it's not happening now. The anti-competitive pay prioritization is illegal under law that existed prior to what's going to happen on Thursday under antitrust and consumer protection law. But um, pay prioritization is actually legal under Title II. So the Netflix of the world can benefit from a volume discount at the expense of the proverbial person in their garage coming up with the next video streaming service. Um, and that's what's left out of this debate. Is that a lot of folks in Silicon Valley hear chatter about Title II and how it'll solve the world for them, solve any problems or fears that they have. They don't have any problems. It's doing great. But any fears that they have, all the fear-mongering that's gone on, which is not rooted in fact. And what they indeed have is a tiger by the tail, which is going to, called Title II, which is going to whip around and bite them ultimately. Um, so that, these will be the perverse uh, effects of Title II, is actually it will end up being a drag 
on the internet economy and at the edge in particular, unless the FCC is trying to just rewrite the law, which is essentially what it's doing right now, which is to legislate, to reinterpret Title II in a novel fashion, which I don't think will uh, be upheld in court. Um, first of all, we need to think of, you know, net neutrality uh, is all messaging and little substance. Yeah. And it's going to come home to roost uh, on Thursday. And that is because, and I will make a bold prediction or bold statement, 99.9% of people who say they're for net neutrality have no clue what Title II is and what Title II means for the broader Internet ecosystem. That's because they don't know that the law in 1934 was written functionally to draw a function. And so when we went from analog technology to digital, it didn't say, oh, it's digital to new technology. Oh, it's not regulated. No, the digital is replicating the function of the uh, analog. And so, um, you know, it is written in a way which is maximally grabbing. It's just the way it, it was written. It was written open-ended. Now, um, so you need to think um, also of Title II for the Internet ecosystem. Content, advertisers, websites, everybody. It's an uncertainty virus because the word Internet is synonymous with communications, the Federal Communications Commission, the Communications Act of 1934. They are regulating communications. The Internet ecosystem, that's what it is. Everything everybody does, every time you transmit, anytime you click something, a cookie goes, everything is about communications. That's what it is. And they don't realize that the privacy laws, that the pricing, that the anti-discrimination, can you have you know, search neutrality, can you have cloud computing neutrality, whatever it is, all of those principles, I call it an internet fairness doctrine, it can be applied to anyone. Now, to tell you why I'm right, Google, who um, hired the uh, former Obama FCC general counsel, just wrote an ex parte a couple of days ago to the FCC and said, uh, uh, excuse me, FCC, but uh, by the way, you really can't or shouldn't do what you're going to do, which is, you know, one way it's okay for you to regulate edge to edge, but, you know, the incoming or outgoing, the other side, you can't do that with. And because that would capture us and the rest of the Internet. And so do it just on you know, one way traffic, but not the other way traffic. And when you read, I was laughing out loud when I read that thing, because here is a former FCC general counsel that only a week before they're going to do this has woken up and said, oops, this applies to our company and everybody else. Now, all these other companies who don't have anybody that knows uh, any of this stuff in great detail, they're all listening to the messages and saying, charge the ramparts, charge the ramparts. You know, they, they're just doing it. And so this is something where people are just going to have to um, learn the hard way. And they will learn the hard way because people will, just like any of them can sue and say, this ISP or this transport person is treating us unjustly and, um, and unreasonably. Somebody else can come and sue them for the same thing, and then they go, you mean I need to hire a lawyer? You mean I need to defend? That's ridiculous. Well, when they get a subpoena for a deposition, all of a sudden they'll realize, 
hmm, this poss- even though this might, in the end, in four years, not apply, for, apply to us, for four years, I might have to pay legal fil- fees to argue that it doesn't apply to me. This is a mind-boggling mess, and it's because it's all politics, and very few adults out there have a clue of what they've gotten everybody into. Let's, uh, let, let's drill down on some of the sections of the act. I, I keep hearing, I'm sure you all hear the same thing, that uh, Title II is just about uh, rate regulation. If they're not going to regulate rates, there's no fear of Title II. Let me just toss out a few sections of the act and see uh, uh, how they might affect uh, businesses going forward. Um, and uh, Scott, you touched on one earlier. It was 222, one of my favorites, CP&I. Uh, now, CP, in fairness, 222 primarily applies to local exchange carriers. Uh, defined term, and I, I don't know whether uh, broadband providers are going to get lumped in with uh, local exchange carrier. Commissioner McDowell nodding his head here. According to the chairman's cheat sheet from a few weeks oh, ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's right here. I'm looking it's, at it right it's here. It's there. Protects it's consumer there. privacy under Section 222. So will that apply to just elects, as the statute says, or are they going to take a very expansive look at Lex? Probably ISPs become Lex, I think, functionally. Oh, that's what now I'm guessing. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, if ISPs become lex, that exposes them to 251c3. And you want to explain to folks what that is? 251c3 are the obligations of the local exchange carrier in 251, and from which, by statute, the commission cannot forbear in 251. And to piggyback that, I'm, I'm not sure it just applies because I've been reading it, studying it. It doesn't just apply to local exchange carriers; it's telecom carriers. Of which then it go gets them. It's that definition of telecom carriers, which then gets them into this morass of is it telecommunications or is it information services? And that's unbundling, right? So to yeah. require the C. Yes. Yeah. So to require anyone with a network to resell the piece parts of their networks. That's part of. That's part that's of C three. Yeah, that's C3. what unbundling it's is. Unbundling yeah. interconnection. And interconnection. And uh, resell. They also have to resell. Now, what's uh, interesting about the chairman's uh, memo from a few weeks ago uh, is he mentions interconnection, but never actually specifically cites Section two fifty one, which is where the authority comes from. Uh, and it's curious as to why they did that. And this is you know a spin sheet. So. So they may be exposed to 222. They may be exposed to 251. Um, there are provisions of the act that, uh, uh, to go to the mother may I example, if you want to uh, uh, expand a network or retract a network, you have to get specific authority from the commission in advance. Is that 208? 214, I think you're thinking about. 214. But I don't see 214 enumerated, at least not yet. Heaven help us if that one is. Can I, let me extend this on the privacy thing because why this is so important is um, this gets us into the discussion about the FTC versus the FCC. That's a good Why point. the FCC is doing this is because they um, want to give Heisman to um, the F Federal Trade Commission of saying, you, if we do common carrier, we, there's an exemption in the law that the Department of Justice put in on the Judge Green um, MFJ way back then on the AT&T uh, breakup 
that said it's justice that oversees communications and the FCC, not the Federal Trade Commission. So for the last several years, the FTC has been saying we're going to enforce Section 5 and we're going to uh, you know, enforce privacy, that if you make a privacy pledge, if you don't live up to it, we're going to um, get you under the FTC fair representation. Well, as we all know that there's not much privacy on the Internet, but we do know there are three bodies of law that there are financial protections that reach into the Internet. Communications, financial um, uh, um, privacy, and healthcare privacy. Okay? So, the reason why I think um, everybody is going to um, wake up and realize this is a problem is, is that what the uh, Section 222 does is CPNI, Customer Private Network Information. In the analog world, that was basically who called whom, how long, from where. Okay? Now, in the Internet world, there's a lot more communications. And the law says that, that it is a customer has the right to privacy and they, it, uh, they can give permission to give it up, but it has to be explicit permission. And so when this migrates... Um, the ISPs are no the the non-ISPs. The ecosystem is to say, well, that doesn't apply to us. Yes, it does. The law is trying to protect the consumer, and the law says that it applies um, because sensitive network who you're calling, when, where, how long, and from where is important. And um, and so that's a cookie. That is um, anytime anybody wants to do targeted advertising. They're building it off. Well, who is this person? Was it on a tablet? Was it on a smartphone? Was it on a, a desktop? Are they moving? Are they mobile? Are they, you know, what, what are they using? They want to capture that because they need it in order to target and advertise you. They're not supposed to, and it says in there, you're not allowed to use this for marketing. So it captures them and says, wait a minute, this sensitive private information under Section 222 is not legal to be used in the way the Internet uses it. Nobody f- figured that out. Now, when people say, oh, you know, Cleveland's just making a big, you know, um, scare here. No. Look at what, why, um, what, um, what happened to Google just this summer when the Supreme Court dis- declined to take cert on a wiretapping case. Basically, they, you know, have been uh, with Wi-Fi, with street free Wi-Fi. They were intercepting communications with putting a one box of intercepting all emails and scanning them for ads. That's gone through court. It's gone all, all the way to the Supreme Court. And they said, oh, the wiretapping statute doesn't apply to us. The Supreme Court agreed with the lower court and said, oh, yes, it does. Because functionally, Google intercepted communications. It doesn't care if it's a wireless transmission in analog or digital or whatever. The law is written functionally. So they read it literally. The Supreme Court and the appeals court said, Yes, the, um, the uh, um, Google was intercepting communications without the permission or knowledge of those who were doing it. That's wiretapping, huge liability. So people who think that the uh, customer's right to privacy on that most intimate information under the telecom, under the Communications Act, doesn't apply, well, they're going to have to fight in court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And by the way, the first... Um, Petitions we've seen to the Supreme Court don't look good. What about some other sections of the Act? Uh, Disability access, 
universal service. Uh, Let's talk about universal service for a second. Sure. Can we? Anyway. Right. So um, this is curious. In, in the again in the chairman's uh, memo here. So uh, it says major provisions of Title II that the order will apply, and that's bold, all caps and italics. So they really mean it. Okay. Uh, and what the last bullet point under that uh, is uh, bolsters universal service fund support for broadband service in the future through partial application of Section 254. And then underneath it says, uh, it, uh, universal service contributions, the order does not require broadband providers to contribute to the universal service fund under Section 254. Well, this is curious. There, this is, this is uh, a contradictory uh, statement. And it's within, uh, I don't know, it's an inch and a half of each other on the page. Um, so what's curious is in October of 2011, the FCC voted to have broadband internet access supported by the Universal Service Fund. It's overall, uh, there are many funds in it, but about $8 billion a year. Four and a half or so for the Connect America Fund, it was, it was rebranded. Okay, so why do we need to invoke Section 254 in this memo it, and the notion that the order will bolster universal service fund support when that was already done in 2011? So that, and then they go on to say, but we're not going to ta essentially tax the Internet. So there's the contribution side, the, the taxing. You, you pay all those line items that you can't understand on your phone bill, your wireless bill. So those are universal, many of them, universal service uh, uh, contributions, attacks of, of sorts, and the distribution side, where does it go? And the FCC administers that through a federally chartered corporation, USAC. So why invoke 254? What are we going to see come out of Thursday's order? Because if the FCC is already supporting um, broadband through universal service support, and uh, they recently voted in a divided 3-2 vote, to expand uh, that support. Why do they need to do that? Why do they need to invoke? It tells me that perhaps later on they're laying the groundwork for contribution reform to do the opposite of what they say they're not going to do, double negative, to do what you know, they, they say they're not going to do, um, which is to have to start assessing internet access in order to support more spending uh, for uh, the subsidy to support new things, um, schools, libraries, anchor institutions, uh, but perhaps devices, school kids, and things like that. So I, I found that very, very curious, and it's to be continued, and uh, we'll see what happens over the next 22 months. I, I, find, the, uh, I find the language you cite uh, fascinating to say uh, partial? Yeah. 250? Partial? Let me read it again, just for fun. Uh, is there partial in Section 10? Right. So, no. So, bolsters universal service fund support for broadband service in the future through partial application of Section 254. I don't know how that works. So, we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> we're thinking. It's a think I'm, tank here, and we're all thinking. But I, uh, I'm sorry. I, I've thought that went on, but I always thought it was illegal to partially apply the law. It's well, kind of a selective. Will it be arbitrary and capricious? Yes. So. Well, uh, 254 um, has, you know, it goes back to 1934. It was a New Deal provision. 
And so, you know, they had about a third of the country that had phones in 1934. And, um, For you the know, concept of uh, universal with, service. With yeah. Universal service was to get phones out to everybody, just like the rural electrification was to get electricity to everybody. Noble goal, very high consensus of, about it. But um, the, the, it took, you know, over 50 years, like 60 years for them to achieve that. That's not very good. So regulatorily to, to achieve this. Now, let's just put that in perspective of how long it took to get broadband to everybody in the same amount. Like they got, took them like 60 years to get it to um, 95%. Well, it took less than a decade for broadband to be available competitively to all Americans. And that's because they were doing it by different technologies. They were doing it wirelessly by, um, by copper wire, by fiber, by um, uh, um, cable electrically, they, optically through fiber. They were doing it wirelessly through satellite, through fixed wireless, through um, uh, cellular. So um, obviously, 1996 Act was right. Let's move away from, competi- away from regulation, away from monopolies to competition. And we have um, not perfectly, but gotten broadband out with uh, um, choices to virtually everybody in the, in the country. And the Obama administration, the White House, uh, President Obama was touting their successes of how about almost everybody got. Now, there's always a problem to get to the last 1% or 2% because those are the people like Eskimos or those people that are out living in their, you know, they'll be in areas where there might be, um, you know, 100 people that live in a county, uh, size of a county. So it's, it's very expensive and hard to reach them and very, expe- very expensive. Um, that's an area where there might need to be some government involvement. But universal service, what they want to do here, no, 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 no. They, they're not really interested in spending a lot of money to get it to the last 1% or 2%. They see they want to get their hands on, how can we do this to, uh, to subsidize uh, the rest and get them, you know, whether it's a new, uh, you know, more fiber, get a gigabit, get a wireless plus a wireline, uh, get a, a free laptop, a free tablet, uh, subsidize this or that. That's what this is. It's basically they, they believe they'll have the taxing authority to do it. And the interesting thing here is once they start taxing it and raising in fees, surprise, surprise, economics means that when the price goes up, some of the people on the margin can't afford it anymore. Whoops. Then they need to raise the taxes and fees to subsidize it so that they can subsidize and pay for the people that they kicked off the rolls because they raised the taxes and fees. It creates this perverse spiral economically where politically they always got to come in and do more subsidies. Reminds me of the Reagan quotes, or the famous quote, if you see something moving, uh, or some people, if they see something moving, uh, they tax it. If it keeps moving, they regulate it. If it stops moving, they subsidize it. Uh, so that's what's happening. And to, uh, to piggyback the one I love about it is he basically, I, I'm a, a bureaucracy is like an organism that never dies. Let me ask a, a technical legal question about uh, forbearance. Um, there's been talk about the commission forbearing from certain sanctions. Can a future commission undo a forbearance? Can a future commission say, well, the prior commission forbore, I don't know what the past tense is. Yeah, we're all uh, struggling uh, with that. Uh, <laughs> uh, from section X. Uh, we think that was a mistake. Uh, and we're just going to write an order right now, unforbearing from that. Can that be done? You know that this is somewhat uh, untested territory, but uh, let's for uh, forbearing from a whole section is yeah, untested uh, as well. Exactly, all this is unprecedented. But uh, so, for argument's sake, let's say it, it withstands appeal. Yes, I think the answer is yes. That uh, 
And the Supreme Court has ruled that the the regulator, uh, there's a, a Fox Supreme Court case from a couple years ago on, on something, the change in the indecency rules, it was a broadcast matter, but that the commission can change its mind, uh, but it has to explain itself. You know, what's the rational basis for it? And, and that's in limited circumstances and a lot of caveats and conditions there. But theoretically, yes, a commission that forbears today um, you know, can unforbear later. But keep in mind, too, the general trajectory uh, there are more pages of the Code of Federal Regulations uh, today than there were yesterday. There'll be more regulations tomorrow than there are today, and certainly more in five or ten years. Uh, so the trajectory is to regulate more. It tends to be a one-way ratchet, um, even in uh, deregulatory administrations. So there will only be more of this stuff. Uh, I think the um, if they can do what they're doing in reclassifying Title II and saying, oops, we changed our mind, 44 years of precedent, 44 years of experience, we're wrong. Oops, sorry. And the court upholds that under Chevron deference. If they can do that with three votes, they pretty much can do anything. Like basically say, oops, I'm sorry, we made a mistake in forbearing, we take it back. And the thing that makes, the, the, why I think this is has huge risk and arbitrary and capricious is there's no limiting standard. If they can do this now, why can't in June they say, oops, I've made a mistake again, I'm going to undo it. And then, but in April, then by September when they get a lot of grief on it, then they flip back. I mean, how long, what's a reasonable amount of time for them to change their mind? And how many times can they change their mind? And what I think is the court's not going to grant, courts are not going to grant them uh, um, Chevron deference on this. They're going to have to say, uh, excuse me, but uh, if you said this 10 years ago and people spent, uh, by the way, Somewhere upwards of six, seven hundred, eight hundred billion dollars, on the assumption that that fiber wasn't going to be and, and, and wireless wasn't going to be Title II covered. That's, it seems to me there's a reliance interest there, and if you just willy-nilly take it away, that's arbitrary. And don't those people have some rights that they um, in, under the Constitution to not be treated arbitrarily, capriciously? Now, maybe if it had been after six months and people hadn't done very much investment and they changed it then and said, we made a mistake, I don't think there's going to be, they, they would have nearly the trouble. But when you've done it for a decade and people have um, invested and built and uh, whole industries have emerged from that uh, a set of assumptions, I don't think the FCC can just start saying, well, there's a precedent out there that says we can change our mind, so we're changing our mind. It's not that simple. It's what are you changing your mind about, and is it reasonable, and is, or is it arbitrary that you're changing it? And by the way, the process that you went through to decide you changed your mind, was it a reasonable process? Was it due process? Was it, uh, did it follow the Administrative Procedures Act that's been in the, in the law for, for 60 years? So um, you know, I, I think, you know, um, heaven help us if uh, with three votes they can do this because Basically, they can do most anything they want if this is legal. Let's, uh, let's open it up to our audience for questions and our, uh, anyone who has uh, our online audience, please submit questions. The Twitter handle is Title II. Hashtag, Hashtag Title, Title II. II. That's great. I have a question here. And please identify yourself for the audience. Uh, Brian Beery, I'm a reporter for Europolitics newspaper. Um, you probably know the European Parliament and Council are 
doing the same thing at the moment, um, trying to figure out on the net neutrality thing. But my question is probably a bit more political. I know you talked a lot about the legality. Um, first of all, and this is probably a very naive question, um, is there any possibility on Thursday that that you know there's not going to be a 3-2 vote in favor of the rule? And um, secondly, when you look over at Congress, you now have Republicans in control of both um, House and Senate. Is there any possibility of legislative action that would countermand um, anything the FCC does? So real quick, I, there will it'll be a three to two vote for sure. Um, Congress is uh, has tried and is trying on a bipartisan basis to come up with a different solution. That's you know by the way something we didn't address is everything that President Obama outlined, the policy goals he outlined on November the 10th, could be accomplished, they're ostensible goals, I guess now, could be accomplished through a different legal theory other than Title II, under the Section 706 theory laid out by the court, which I also disagree with, but that's what the court has ruled um, a year ago, January. So uh, nonetheless, Congress is working on something. We'll see. I think Congress wants to wait to see exactly what it is the FCC does and then maybe react to that. You know, then there's the question of can you get 60 votes in the Senate to avoid a filibuster, uh, and then the next hurdle would be, uh, if you clear that one, uh, would the president sign it or veto it? Uh, so th it's hard to pass legislation in our process, especially on something as divisive as this. But real quick, regarding Europe, you know, keep in mind where I think this is headed. If you look at the testimony of Columbia Law Professor Tim Wu, the man who coined the term net neutrality, who I testified alongside last summer, at the House Judiciary Committee, um, where they really want this to go is not just common carrier regulation under Title II, but more of a European style and, back in the day, U.S. style, public interest standard for regulating the Internet the way broadcasters have been regulated traditionally uh, here in the U.S. And if you look at the European thinking, uh, the transmission of, of content and apps and the uh, regulation of content and apps by themselves are becoming one and the same. So there's you know, the right to be forgotten, um, along with just sort of general regulation in the internet ecosphere here. And European countries actually almost voted uh, to expand the International Telecommunication Union's, the ITU's, uh, authority during the World Conference on International Telecoms in December of 2012 in Dubai. Um, and it's a long story, which we don't have time for. But um, that told me a lot about the thinking of even liberal Western democracies uh, of they want more state involvement overall. This all gets boiled down to this concept. More government involvement in the Internet's affairs, period. And that's what's happening. That's the world trajectory. And there will be more of this in five years or one year than there is today. And it won't be good for the Internet ecosphere, and it won't be good for freedom. Uh, to answer your question uh, from European politics, what you should be looking at is, as you know, your, um, the, uh, the EC is in Europe is moving towards a single digital market. That's you know, one of the big, the main goals of what Europe is going to do in this in this new European Commission. And um, there's a lot of tension about whether uh, GAFA, Google, uh, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple are going to be captured and going to be regulated for privacy and other things. And uh, um, the president only two weeks ago was complaining that uh, the Europeans were being protectionist. Well. The Europeans are now going to be able to say, uh, excuse me, but by the FCC doing this, they, but they are asserting a single digital market definition. So America will also have, and actually beat Europe to the punch, of creating, through regulation, 
a digital single market regulated, overseen by the FCC. And um, the purpose of that behind uh, it is net neutrality and Title II is because they want to have zero pricing. Okay, we haven't talked about that. It's absolutely critical to understand why Netflix is in this, why Amazon is in it, why Google YouTube. All of them want to be able to have their bits delivered at a zero price. Okay? Now, the Europeans and the European ISPs are going, well, wait a minute. Um, Netflix and, and Google are sending and, and consuming most all of the traffic on the downstream. And we need to get paid because we're, you know, in that half, we're not getting paid and the consumer's paying the whole amount. The Europeans, and you look at in France, there's already petitions to go in this direction. And, and there was a, a, a European Parliament person that just wrote the, um, the FT today that said, oh, by the way, uh, um, you know, this is, you know, it's really kind of funny that uh, the president is calling us protectionist when they're being protectionist. They're protecting Silicon Valley. And so the trade implications of Title II are horrible. Right now, we, ha um, um, we have a receiving party pays. Basically, the consumer pays for the Internet. Under the International Telecommunications Union, the trade treaty that is operative today means that any country can um, regulate telecommunications, Title II, how they see fit. And the way the UN treaty is set up is it's sending party pays, meaning the transmitter like Google YouTube and Netflix and Facebook and all these they have to pay, and the consumer gets it for free. Like an old-fashioned long-distance phone call terminating right. in a foreign country. What a mess. So what they've triggered is they had a system that everybody got to, an economic model everybody got used to, receiving party pays. Well, they reclassified it for one of their own purposes, but legally they're triggering an international treaty, which then allows countries around the world, and we have 200 countries Probably 150 of them are, are autocratic or rough or um, or partially autocratic, uh, concerning you know how the Hudson Institute would look at freedom, and we've given those countries now a pass to basically say we're going to do utility regulation like President Obama says the United States do, and uh, that means we can do whatever we want. We can basically tariff Google and Netflix traffic, and by the way, it gives us political cover for not only protectionism but censorship of our people. It's Horrible, a horrible, logical, unintended consequence. Uh, I just add a footnote. Uh, Communications Act was passed in 1934, set up the FCC. Uh, in the 81 years that have followed, uh, Congress has had one major rewrite uh, in 1996. Uh, occasionally, Congress will pass a law to clean up a mess that the FCC has made. It's the exception rather than the rule. I think the last time that happened was on uh, media ownership uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and, and no one – Congress set up independent agencies to make decisions about detailed issues that were uh, – so that Congress wouldn't have to be confronted with making these detailed issues – uh, detailed decisions all the time. So I think the idea that Congress is going to come in and clean up this mess is um, – uh, is not a likely outcome. Yes. Oh, actually, and I, I've got a Twitter question here from uh, from Brett Glass. Does Section 230's clear policy statement, part of Title II, prevent Chevron deference on this matter? 
So uh, in 1996, uh, as the commissioner knows, uh, I just happened to bring Section 230, Brett. So thank you for bringing it up uh, all the way from Wyoming. They're Lariat, uh, a wireless internet service provider, and he's very, very concerned about net neutrality. But it says it is the policy of the United States, and then subsection 2 says, this is all direct quote, to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. This is a, uh, a section of the statute that the Verizon court last year, the D.C. Circuit, ignored. Um, and hopefully future appellate courts uh, will recognize and breathe new life into it. So I don't think it prevents Chevron deference uh, necessarily, but uh, Chevron deference is going to be very complicated uh, by the fact that this order, Brett, uh, is going to look very arbitrary and capricious. There's almost no way the commission can write around it in 332 pages or uh, more. I would just add to that that uh, uh, the commission has consistently ignored every policy statement and statute, beginning with the preamble to the 1996 that it was a deregulatory bill. Um, Yeah. Congress has the view that Congress sets policy. The FCC has the view that it sets policy and can ignore what Congress has written. And, and that dispute has, has not ended. And fortunately, anything that's labeled a policy statement, the Commission tends to ignore. I'm sorry. Question right here. Gentlemen. Thank you. My name is Hermes Levy from OWS. I can understand, I can feel uh, a kind of upset from what is happening. And it's just uh, the last one in a long series. You can take Obamacare, you can take Dodd-Frank, you can take NSA, immigration. There are many things happening and people seem not to pay attention to what is happening. And it's very important that we, the American people, understand what's going on. Otherwise, this country is gone. It's not, uh, it's not my, uh, to, to, to clarify this, it's, it's not in this conference. I will need maybe Mr. Ro Mr. Harold to have a, a conference to explain what's, what is going on. But uh, in a nutshell, it's not politics, it's high politics. There are people interested in destroying the U.S., they hear and they use the government to do so. In order to explain it, I, I ask you, Mr. Harold, to give me the opportunity to talk to it because it's, it's going to take many hours to extricate, to have the people understand what is going on. But that's an attack against freedom, against the U.S., and against uh, the worldwide. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those comments. Happy to chat with you afterwards. Other questions? Other questions? If not, thank you all so very much, and please join me in thanking our experts today. Thank you. And you. Thank you.